Well, good day and welcome to the online ministry for St. Augustine's Anglican Church in Inverell. My name is Matt. That's great you're watching with us. This ministry has been prepared for October the 1st, 2023. Uh, hear this sentence of scripture as we begin. From Psalm 96, tell of the salvation of the Lord from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations. We get to praise him and declare his glory both in our lives and in song as we lift our voices to him. And we'll do that in the latter of those right now.
Well, as we come to the ministry of God's word, let me pray for our time. Almighty God, our creator and guide, may we serve you with all our heart and know your forgiveness in our lives. We ask this through our Lord Jesus Christ, your son, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Well, our series continues in the book of Daniel today, and we're looking at chapters 7 through to 9. I'm particularly focusing on chapter 7 today, and that's where our first reading is. You can read the whole chapter, or you might like to read just the first 18 verses. Our psalm for today is Psalm 93, and our New Testament reading comes from Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through to 15. Pause the video for a moment now, have a read of those Bible passages, and then we'll come back and think it through together. Well, today we are in the back half of the book of Daniel, and you probably noticed, as you read through part of chapter 7, that the type of writing that we encounter here is different to what we've seen so far in the first half of the book. Right, We're no longer in historical narrative, but now we've made our way to a new kind of genre called apocalyptic literature. Now, I'm aware that there'll be a few people watching who really love this stuff. You get excited about it. You want to try and work out what it means. But that's not most of us. I suspect most people watching are a little bit confused reading it and going, I don't know what to do with it. I feel like just kind of turning the pages and pretending like it's not there. But no, don't do that. No, this is part of God's word. And just like in the book of Revelation, it's apocalyptic literature and God's given it to us for our good and our growth. And so we're going to take a little bit longer today. And part of the reason is because I just want to add a bit more at the start. I want to take a moment to help help you think about how to helpfully read apocalyptic literature. Uh, because here it's, it's all kind of visions and those kind of things. And I think a great way to describe apocalyptic visions and literature is to liken it to an impressionist's painting, right? What we're looking at isn't like, isn't like a photo. It's not meant to be uh, detail accurate, but it's meant to be bright and vibrant and communicate its own truth in its own kind of way. But like an impressionist painting, if you focus hard on the details, you're actually going to miss the beautiful whole picture of the landscape that's laid out before us. And so here are some tips. Tip number one, when reading this, don't try and make logical sense or give interpretation to every point of detail within the passage. Right? But step back and try and get the overall picture. Tip number two, be prepared for some heavy use of symbolism and metaphor, especially when it comes to numbers. Tip number three, anytime you do want to try and make an identification of what an image is that you see here, be prepared to hold your interpretation with, with loose and open hands. And that leads into tip number four, which is while apocalyptic visions often point forward towards the future, Remember that they often have multiple points of fulfillment. Right? There may, may be more than just one way of seeing it fulfilled. Now, if that's all confusing, that's okay. Bear with us. Uh, I'll point out some of these along the way as we're reading through chapter 7. But just remember, 
Uh, don't read it literally like you'd look at a photo or like you would literally read Paul's argument in the book of Romans, for example. No, no, think about the Impressionist painting. Finally, uh, I want to say that whenever we read an apocalyptic vision, uh, this is something that God is giving his people as a comfort for them as they live in or are about to face tough and difficult times. Now, that's hopefully for us what we will see and in the encouragement that we will get out of it today. And so, why don't I pray that we would get there? That rather than this being confusing, that it would be helpful and encouraging. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for all of your word, that it is breathed out by you for our good and our growth. Please help us to see the big picture clearly here today. Now please encourage us, strengthen us in our faith, and keep us keep our eyes fixed on Jesus as we see your vision of him clearly. Amen. Well, what's going on behind the scenes is so often not the picture that we have on the surface. Now, for example, if you're watching a movie, you might be watching a romantic movie, romantic scene. There's a couple, they're snuggly together. It's beautiful. It's just them. It's intimate. It's lovely. But if you were to take a step back and see actually what's going on behind the camera, you find that there's a dozen cameras and a dozen of the crew all there with them. It's not the intimate romantic scene that you thought it was. What we see is really limited, but when we take a step back and see the whole picture, it changes our perspective on things. Same for if it's a scary scene. A romantic scene, you take a step back, you see the people, you see the cameras, you see the lights, you see the green screens. It changes the way you feel about it. I want to say that that's what Daniel chapter 7 does for us today. It should help us in our thinking about the world that we live in and especially about the way that we look forward towards the future. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus, you may have quite a pessimistic view of the world because of how it treats Christians. But one friend of mine said that, you know, if I was stuck on a desert island and I could only take a handful of chapters from the Bible, Daniel 7 would be one of these. It would be one of these because it takes us behind, beyond our own perspective to see and remember God's big picture and what he is doing in the world and through history. So, that sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Let's take a look. Daniel 7 verse 1, and we start by finding that in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream, and visions passed through his mind as he was lying in bed. Now, as we start to read chapter 7, uh, the verse, first verse that tells us some things that I think, at least, should jump out to us as we read it. And it's for a few reasons. Uh, when you look at who's king here, it reminds us that, what shows us that what we're reading isn't kind of chronologically what happens next in the book. Right? It actually tells us that this takes place somewhere between chapters 4 and chapter 5. And secondly, you notice that it's no longer the Babylonian kings like at the start who are getting these, uh, these visions and dreams. No, this is not God's message of salvation to the world anymore. No, this is God's message to his people. This is a message of comfort for them. Although, it doesn't start like a message of comfort, does it? Because as we start, uh, I mean, this whole scene, it's, it's meant to fill us with a sense of dread and terror as we see chaos and disorder. Verse 2 talks about the churning up of a great sea as it's hit with winds from every direction. 
And then verse 3, out of this chaotic scene, four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. I want you to picture these as if you're standing there, like with Daniel. You're standing there on the beach and you're seeing these great beasts come up and tower over you, coming out of the waters. Water kind of flying off them, as they're revealed. What do we see? Verse 4. The first beast was like a lion, with wings of an eagle, wings that are torn off, and yet it's then raised up on its, on its feet like a man. Verse 5, the second beast like a frightening bear, midway through devouring some other poor creature or perhaps poor person. Verse 6, the third beast, he's like a four-headed leopard rising up out of the water with four great wings as well. And then in verses 7 and 8, we're told about a fourth beast. Someone that was, something that was perhaps so terrifying and unlike anything else Daniel had ever seen, that he's got nothing, no creature to liken it to or describe it with except that he describes what it's doing with its iron-like teeth and this, these kind of weirdly autonomous horns that pop up and sprout out of one another. Right? This seems like some, some kind of regenerative mutating kind of thing, right? And this vision is meant to appeal to our senses. We're meant to kind of see and smell and hear and what these strange beasts are like. And we're meant to be overwhelmed by their, their sight along with Daniel. And in verse 15, we're told that, yeah, Daniel was troubled in spirit and the visions that passed through his mind disturbed him. Well, they are pretty disturbing. He wants to know the meaning of it all and, and he's given the meaning in verse 17. So jump down there with me now. Verse 17, Daniel is told that the four great beasts are four kings that will rise from the earth. Now, at this point, our minds may kind of jump back to chapter 2 because there, King Nebuchadnezzar himself has a dream. A dream that has a statue with four parts. And there, Daniel interprets a dream for him and says, those four parts are four kings, four kingdoms. And you might remember that back in chapter 2, I attempted to give us an explanation of who those earthly kingdoms might be. And I think that the explanation I gave then still fits quite well to this now. Now, the prophet Jeremiah, he... Uh, uses the picture of a lion and an eagle to talk about Nebuchadnezzar. And so perhaps the first beast is like Babylon. And maybe we see the way that the second beast, the bear raised up on its side, is like the, the kingdom of the Medes and Persians. Uh, and the, the rising up on one side describes the way that the Persians were dominant over the Medes. Perhaps we see that the four-headed beast, the, the leopard thing with the four wings, is like the kingdom of Greece, whose led by Alexander, but then he's kind of, once he's dead, splits into four. And I think there's reasons as we compare this fourth beast with the fourth part of the statue in chapter two to see a way that actually it sounds a little bit like it might be describing the Roman Empire. But, you know, I said at the start, any interpretation we want to have, hold it with loose and open hands. And even though I think it fits well, the passage doesn't actually tell me explicitly who they are. And so I'm not going to nail my colours to the mast at that point. Now, in contrast to that, if we were to jump forward and read Daniel chapter 8, we find he has another vision. But there, we find he has a vision about a two-horned ram and then a single-horned goat that comes and attacks the other and, and defeats it. And 
unlike chapter 7, there in chapter 8, we're told explicitly who they are, right? who they're meant to represent. We're told that the, the two-horned ram is meant to represent the kingdom of Medes and Persia, the Medes and Persians, and that the goat represents Greece. Now, that may give us some help in, in thinking about and understanding chapter 7, right? If I was to think about the possible uh, explanation I gave, that would mean that chapter 8 talks about the middle two kingdoms. But we're not actually given that kind of correspondence in chapter 7, are we? And so again, I want to hold any identification that I want to make kind of loosely and with open hands. But actually, I think the bigger reason that there's no explicit identification in chapter 7 is because the beasts aren't tied down to any one particular nation or people or time. Now you may recall that at the start I said one of the tips in reading apocalyptic literature is to, to remember that often there is multiple horizons of fulfillment. Now, for example, does the image of this fourth beast find fulfillment in the Roman Empire? Yeah, I think it kind of does. But is it only embodied by the Roman Empire? No, I don't think that at all. I believe that it's so much more than that. Let me think theologically with you for a second here. Uh, In the book of Genesis, at the start of the Bible, we find that God made humanity. He made man and woman, Adam and Eve. God is the ruler of the world, and he made humanity to rule the world under him. Adam is truly human when he rules God's world, God's way. But to rule the world or our lives in a way that is independent from God is to not be truly human. In other words, to do life without God is to rule in a subhuman, beastly sort of way. And so with that in mind, it shouldn't be any surprise to see that throughout history, there will be continually kings and nations and groups and organizations and individuals who seek to rule their little domain independent from God. And in doing so, they make the world a chaotic place full of terror and uncertainty. And especially that's true for God's people. In fact, when we turn to the apocalyptic language of Romans, sorry, of Revelation 13, we find something quite striking after reading Daniel 7 here. Because there we encounter one singular beast who emerges out of the sea again, but who visually resembles all of these four beasts we find here in Daniel 7. And that beast there, Revelation 13, he continues raging on until the time where he's met with final destruction on the last day. Now, the point I'm making is that as we read the first part of Daniel's vision in chapter 7, in the context of the whole Bible, I think we're meant to see that this is not unique to any one nation, or person, or moment in history. And for us, it's meant to remind us of our solidarity with Daniel and his generation in their fears and struggles. Because like them, we too find ourselves living in a world full of people who seek to rule in a way that doesn't acknowledge God. They seek to rule life and do life in a way that is subhuman and beastly. It's a world that we struggle against and a world that often threatens to overcome us. And perhaps that's what you're feeling right now. Perhaps as you look out at the world, you feel like things are all too much. Perhaps you feel overwhelmed and trying to live as a faithful follower of God when no one else wants to. 
Well, that was true in Daniel's day. It's true for followers of God today. And it'll be true for his people well into the future. And life, I think, will feel pretty hopeless if we were to stop there, right? If we were to only focus on the worldly chaos we see from our own perspective. But thankfully, in Daniel 7, it keeps going. And it gives us a bigger behind-the-scenes perspective. Now, if you read this chapter really carefully, you'd see, you'd notice that these beasts, they don't have their own intrinsic, intrinsic authority. Right? Each of them are described as being given something or being acted on externally. They have fixed limits. They're not ultimately in control. And so the question for us reading this is, well, who then is in control? With Daniel, we see the answer to that question as we get to the second part of his vision, which comes at verse 9 onwards. And it's a really simple answer. Despite the turmoil, despite the chaos of the world, despite the beastly rulers that we encounter day to day, God is in control of the seemingly uncontrollable. Although nations rise and rage against God and his people, God is not moved. God has a plan of judgment. God has a plan of salvation. And he has a plan of glorification for his people. And so we get to verse 9 and we see Daniel say, As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. Now, normally when we describe something or someone as ancient, we mean that they are really, really old. I wonder who you would describe as being ancient. Well, Daniel here, where he sees God being the Ancient of Days, it doesn't mean that he's old. It means that he is eternal. He's with, without beginning. And then to see him there uh, spoken of in terms of being clothed in white and emanating with fire, verses 9 and 10, it's, it's to speak of his holiness, his purity, his righteousness, and his justice and judgment. And at this point, I want you to pause and notice the contrast between these two scenes between the beasts that erupt out of the chaotic seas and God sitting on his throne. Right? God isn't terrified. God isn't moved. He's not running around trying to sort things out. No, no. God takes his seat. And his heavenly courtroom is in session. Verse 10b. The court was seated and the books were opened. There's no cosmic battle. There's no war. Now, verse 11, God opens his books and the beast is destroyed like the other beasts, they lose their authority. Then I continue to watch verse 11 because of the boastful words the horn was speaking and I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority but were allowed to live for a period of time. Right, he swats them away like they're less than some little annoying fly in summer. And so we're meant to see here two great truths about God that help us lift our eyes beyond the chaotic world that we experience and align our vision with his perspective. First truth is that God is sovereign. Behind the scenes of history, he's in control of the seemingly chaotic world that we're in. Right, he is seated on his throne, not moved. Second great truth about God is that he has set a day when he will judge all evil with perfect justice and righteousness. And we see that judgment spilled out further 
down in verses 26 and 27. We're told that Daniel's, Daniel's explained that the court will sit and his power, that's the power of the fourth beast, it'll be taken away and completely destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, power and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High. Did you catch that? That means if you are on God's side, you are on the winning side of history. And it may not feel like that right now. I mean, in our culture, it may look like we're on the losing side playing an away game, right? Hopeless. But that is why Daniel 7 is good for us. Because it shows us behind the scenes and how things truly stand and how they'll truly end. It shows us what's in store for God's people. But, you notice, that's not the end of the vision, is it? Now, there's one final scene in this climactic moment, and it's this point in his vision where God establishes his king. And so we see it in verse 13. Daniel says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. Now, the term son of man, it's a common Old Testament phrase, and it basically means being a human being. Uh, And in this vision of Daniel, he is shown someone who is like a son of man. And yet at the same time, he's described in ways that only God is described, coming on the clouds of heaven. And so it's a picture of this God-man who can do what no other person can do. That's entering into God's presence without being consumed by his judgment. And we're told, verse 14, about him that he was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And so in contrast to the subhuman, beastly rulers of this world that we encounter, God sets up his king, one who perfectly embodies what it is to be called human, who perfectly embraces the, the call to live and rule things in God's way, and whose kingdom will be eternal. That's who Daniel sees. But he never actually gets to see who the Son of Man is. And yet we do. And while there's no direct identification in the vision of who it is, and nearly 600 years later, we meet a Jewish man, and his favourite way of referring to himself was the Son of Man. And I want you to come with me now to Mark 14, the very end of Mark's Gospel. Uh, in, Daniel's, in Daniel 7, we see, we see a heavenly court scene of God. And at the end of Mark 14, here we find another court scene. This time, where that Jewish man, a man named Jesus, was on trial himself before the authorities. And halfway through Mark 14, verse 61, we see that the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? In other words, they're asking, Are you God's promised, long-awaited, forever King who is going to rescue his people? And Jesus replies, verse 62, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One coming on the clouds of heaven. You see, Jesus, he takes that title from Daniel 7, Son of Man, and he applies it to himself. 
He says, I'm the one who Daniel saw in his vision. I'm the one to whom all power and authority is given. I'm the one who sits at God's right hand in his everlasting kingdom. I'm the one who will defeat evil and give God's people a share of his kingdom. And yet you see how the high priest responds there. Verse 63, the high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses? He asks. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him as worthy of death. And then some began to, some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him. They struck him with their fists and they said, prophesy. And the guards took him away and beat him. And it's in the very next day, the very next chapter of Mark, that Jesus is executed, that we find him nailed to a lonely wooden cross by the Romans. And it's in this moment that it seems like the reality doesn't match the vision from Daniel 7. It looks like the beastly forces of the world have had victory and defeated the Son of Man. He doesn't get a crown. He gets a cross. He doesn't get a throne, but he gets a tomb. But reality can be deceptive, can't it? Because it's actually in this moment, as Jesus is hanging there on the cross, that he has victory. It's a victory that his people share. And it's a victory that every single person, every single one of us need. And we need it not simply because we suffer from other people in the world, but because in our rebellious hearts, in our own way, we set ourselves up against God and we act more like the beasts we see at the start of chapter 7. We act more like them than like true image bearers of God, like we're called to be. If we were to stand in God's heavenly courtroom, then things would not end well for us. We too would deserve destruction and be counted amongst the dead. But you see, when Jesus went to the cross, his death wasn't any ordinary death. Now his death was taking on the weight of God's judgment against our lives lived outside of God's rule. In that moment, the Son of God, who became a Son of Man, took on God's wrath so that you and I don't have to if our faith is placed in him. So listen to what Paul says about the cross of Jesus, why it's good news in, one, in Colossians 2, verse 13 and 15. He says, When you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Right, if you look to the cross, look at the cross from a human perspective, it seems like a moment of weakness, a moment of defeat. But if you look at the cross from God's perspective, like Paul, like Daniel would, then you see that this is actually the moment of Jesus' victory. It's the victory that he invites us into as well. A victory that challenges our perspective on both the present, but also the future. And now, one of the main reasons it changes our perspective, I think, 
is because, of course, Jesus, he didn't stay dead, did he? No, no. He was vindicated. God vindicated him and raised him up again out of the grave, out of the tomb, and has seated him at the right hand in heaven. Now, I said earlier that apocalyptic visions can have multiple horizons of fulfillment. And we need to chiefly see the fulfillment of Jesus' victory, the Son of Man's victory, here in his first coming, when his kingdom is inaugurated on the cross in his death and resurrection and ascension. But we would miss something wonderful if we didn't also have our vision at the end times, when Jesus brings about the fulfillment of this victory in his second coming. It's this final victory that the last book of the Bible, Revelation, is so concerned about. It too was written to Christians who are suffering in a world of beastly rule. And in both Daniel 7 and the book of Revelation, it's a reminder that God will one day turn up and put all things right. He'll deal with evil once and for all and put an end to the suffering of his people. And so for us then, as we do suffer in this world, as being followers of Jesus, how do we continue living as faith-filled people in that kind of world? Well, in order to do that, our hearts need to be captured by God's vision of reality, more than what we see in front of us. And when they are, there will be no truer words for the Christian life than what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, though we experience momentary troubles, For following Jesus now, he says, verse 18, We fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Let's pray and ask God that he would fill our minds with this vision so clearly. And that we would fix our eyes on the victory that Jesus has brought about in his death for us. And that he will bring to fulfillment when he comes again on that final day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, give us hearts, minds, eyes, and wills that focus on your victory, that see things your way, that are captivated by your vision, plant it down deep inside our lives as as something to give us peace, and let it wash into every day as we live lives that glorify and honour you, the God who is not moved, but is seated on your throne. Father, help us to be captivated by a vision of living out lives that, that seek to live under you, ruling the world and living your way, not our own. Father, help us to align our lives to Jesus, the one who perfectly embodies what it looks like to be made man. Father, Encourage us and strengthen us to live for you as we say, come Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, let's go now to another time of praise. Glory and power to the one who 
come to a time of prayer and say in a moment, pause the video, be praying for things happening in your own lives, uh, in the lives of those around you, uh, for our church, for our communities, uh, plenty of things to give thanks to the Lord for uh, today. Our special focus is on outreach. So we want to be lifting to the Lord those around us who don't know Jesus. Be praying that people come to know the Father through the Son and become established in his kingdom, both through the programs we run as different churches, but also as we are engaged in personal outreach ourselves. Let's go to, go to a time of prayer, and then we'll have another time of praise.
Well, let me finish by encouraging you with some words from a wider section from 2 Corinthians 4 that I finished on earlier. Paul says, Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. And so we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Uh, Friends, my prayer for you is that you would indeed fix your eyes on that reality. Have a great week. We'll see you next time.